Our scripture taken is from Matthew 25, verse 1 and 2. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now five were wise and five were foolish. May there be a blessing in the reading of his word. Wow, this is awesome. It's so good to see you all here today. And uh, I'm glad to be here myself, actually. Um, I've been sick all week and didn't know if I'd make it. And uh, just this morning, it finally kind of broke. And uh, so, anyway, glad to be here. I, you know, I... I always wanted to have that nice bass voice, so I'm kind of getting it, you know. <clears throat> most people, you know, most, most guys, it's, it's in their early, t- in late teens or early 20s before they get that bass voice, you know. But I'm finally just now getting it, you know. But uh, what a joy it is to see each one of you here this morning. And, and Guy and Peggy, it's good to see you here. Uh, Guy is a member of our church in Deckard, and uh, his wife, so it's good to see them. Don, Susan, Allred, it's good to see you guys here today. And I know there's many other that are, are guests with us today that I've noticed come in. And of course, I'm not here every Sabbath, so, you know, you can't, could be members, and I don't even know it hardly, you know, because I'm not here every Sabbath. But it's a blessing to be with you today and to share God's word with you today as we worship together. You know, that song, Watchmen Blow the Gospel Trumpet, and it says there, sound it loud or every hilltop. Sound it in the hedge and highway. Sound it for the heavy, laden, weary, longing to be free. Sound it. Sound a Savior's invitation sweetly saying, come to me. That song really says it all. We're to be watchmen. We're to watch. And we are to wait with eager anticipation our Lord's coming. And I hope that that's your your case, that you are waiting with eager anticipation. You know, I also had a little help Yesterday, I took the bulletins down to Deckard, and so I thought, well, I'm going to stop by and see this doctor friend of mine that works at Bennett's Pharmacy. And um, she kind of helped me out a little bit and gave me something to kind of clear up the sinuses. And that, that also took care of things a little bit. So I think I'm probably able to speak a little bit better today. <clears throat> so I, I followed her uh, her guidance. She said, you can take both of these at the, at the same time. And so I did. And it seemed to work. It seemed to work. I think my fever actually broke this morning as I was shaving. But anyway, um, it's, been, it's been a road. Um, you know, as we look forward, and, and everybody has mentioned this, to the new year, it is um, It is something else to realize that we live 
in the last days, there's no doubt of this earth's history, and we can be very thankful to be a part, to be a part of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and his love to all of those around us. Whether it be a church member, whether it be a friend in need, whether it be a family member, whatever the case may be, we have that great opportunity. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our kind and loving Heavenly Father, as we seek for your guidance, we just pray for your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit that the words that I speak may be from you. Yes, words that you have already spoken to us, but yet to look at them again and to see what we can glean from them today. Father, please make me a nail upon the wall fastened securely in its place. And from that nail, Lord, hang a picture of thy dear face. In Jesus' name, amen. Keep watch. Be prepared for anything and everything. In fact, we can even be shocked. Well, you know, I don't know that there's anything in this world today that would shock us. We've seen it all, haven't we? In 2022, we've seen it all. In the last two or three years, nothing is probably going to shock us. For more than 185 years, students of the Bible have been focusing on this text, Matthew 25 and verses 1 through 13. And we're going to look at all of these verses as we go through this process today to understand what it is that Jesus expects of his faithful people as they wait for his second coming. This passage has been, well, it's been central to the Seventh-day Adventist church and to the thought and witness throughout our history. And I will present here a thoughtful, practical guide to understanding, hopefully, this Bible story. So, question, where were you on April 29, 2011? Does it ring a bell at all, April 29, 2011? Anybody? Ring a bell? Pardon? Oh, no, wasn't. Um, April 29, 2011, you may remember, after I tell you, there was a British royal wedding. And no matter what channel you turned on your television, that's what you were going to get to see was that royal wedding. Now, who was the bride? The bride was Kate Middleton, and the groom, of course, 
was Prince William. But who was the star of the wedding? Pippa Middleton. That was the bride's sister. She was the bride's maid. But who was the star? The bride's maid. Jesus once told a parable in which ten bridesmaids were the stars of the show. To be honest, it's a shocking parable. Well, not because it's a bad parable, but because, well, because it's full of surprises. We can be prepared to be shocked. Better still, be prepared. (laughs) Be prepared. Some translations include this warning, keep watch. With an economy of words just 13 verses and 170 words in the Greek, it seems like in the original there of Matthew's gospel that an extraordinary picture is drawn. Most of us can recall the sharp conversations as well as the emotions that are evoked, such emotions as panic and anxiety. As we read the parable, we can almost find ourselves cringing with the sheer awkwardness. Teenagers love to say, well, that was awkward, you know, to describe a particularly embarrassing uh, moment. This parable portrays the ultimate awkward event of all eternity. Of all eternity. Verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. By the way, all of my texts that I read will be from the NIV edition of the Bible. So let's take those first three words, at that time. At that time. We want to know, at what time? At what time? In Matthew 24, there was a graphic portrayal of what's going on in the world before Jesus returns. And now, in Matthew 25, it describes what's happening In the church, today, today. Among Jesus' closest followers. Those in his wedding party, just before his return. So this parable is about discipleship in the world before Jesus returns. That's today. Matthew 25. This parable has an unusual time-related, time-related phrase in its opening lines. 
the kingdom of heaven will be like. Now, you may remember that early in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 13, there was a whole string of parables, all beginning with the kingdom of heaven is like uh, wheat and tares, is like a mustard seed, is like a treasure hidden in a field, is like a pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a net. But the parables in Matthew 25 are unique. You see, when Jesus told these parables, Matthew recorded them as being in the future tense. Yes, all the way down to the end of time. They're describing what is happening in the church just before Jesus comes. For one reason or another, this parable is largely ignored by many in the Christian world. In fact, there was one author who wrote that, um, well, he was referring to all scholars, and then he says, some scholars do not care for this parable, and often it's omitted or treated very briefly. And if we're being truly honest, many of us don't care for this parable either. There's a penetrating sharpness to the parable. The parable is so sharp that there's a warning message at the start. Verse 2 says, five of them were foolish and five were wise. It's as though this parable is so surprising and so shocking that there's a summary already preparing the reader for the surprise that's in store for them. It's much like the warning that comes on certain television and video content that says, viewer discretion advised. Viewer discretion advised. One of the first surprises in the story, Jesus tells, is about the bride. Or actually, to be more accurate, what bride? There's no uh, specific mention of the bride, but we know that the bride is there, right? Certainly. Further, the parable is not known as the parable of the late bridegroom, or to be more accurate, you know, um, the midnight bridegroom. Instead, it's known as the parable of the ten virgins. The bridesmaids are the center of attention. That in itself says something about the great storyteller, Jesus, the great storyteller. His purpose was never about himself. It was about others. It was about the ten bridesmaids. Even on his wedding day, he places the emphasis upon others. And also, there's no mention of any guests. 
Yes, there's an unidentified midnight cry. You see the voice announcing the arrival of the bridegroom, but the whole focus, the whole focus of the story is on the bridesmaids. And in a sense, there's nowhere to hide in this parable. There's only one option. Only one option. And readers of the parable can only be bridesmaids. It's the only option. And if we're again honest, gender doesn't seem to be the issue here. Stick with me now. The characteristics described here are not peculiar to young females. The characteristics of these ten people, it appears in all of humanity, in all nationalities, and in all cultures. Jesus had that way when he told stories, didn't he? Of including everyone. Of the ten, there are five wise, or as some commentators would put it, um, thoughtful or sensible. But then you have the remaining five that have been described as foolish, unwise, even silly, thoughtless by many commentators. And if we're tempted to think as we read, ah, no big deal. Consider what Mrs. White wrote. It's just a very short sentence, but I want you to consider this. Listen very carefully. She said, This parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter. This parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter. Is this parable important? Certainly it is. So the actual parable begins now in verse 3. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. So we have the question, what were those lamps? You know, we may have a, some kind of a picture in our mind of what these lamps were, but I think today you're going to see it completely differently. According to one of the best authorities, the lamps here are not the small, you know, hand-hold, hand-held Herodian, okay, period lamps that we probably all have that picture of in our mind. It will generate it would generate very little light. But torches. You see, in poorer villages, these torches may have been sticks wrapped with oiled rags. Some scholars have suggested that the torches could burn for only like 15 minutes before they would need rewrapping and more oil on the cloth. 
The point is that these lamps would burn brightly, but not for long, but they would burn brightly. And you say, why is that? Well, the purpose of the light was not to provide light for the bridegroom to find his way in the darkness. We know the bridegroom is the brightest light there is in the universe, right? The light is to make for a grand arrival. You can't have a little tiny lamp with a flame that high that's going to be a great arrival, right? A torch. The bridegroom will be illuminated as a focus of attention. And this is his moment of glory as he is on his way to take his bride. That's you and me. We're his bride. His church. His bride. In much the same way, many people welcome the arrival of a new year with spectacular fireworks. That'll probably be tonight, unless it gets rained out, but it doesn't look like it. Sun's shining right now. Uh, the bridesmaids were to welcome the bridegroom with the brightest lights that they could muster up. The brightest lights. Verse 4. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So again, some scholars believe that the torches had associated oil containers. It remains unclear whether the foolish maidens are to be thought of as leaving those containers behind, or perhaps they actually had them with them. However, they failed to fill them with oil, and so the only thing that was left in them was the drudge left from prior times of dunking their, their light into the oil. These associated oil containers or jars were designed so that these lamps or torches were actually dipped into an oil container or jar to maximize the loading of the oil. You see, the cloth, it would absorb the oil like a sponge, soaking it up. Perhaps a better illustration would be like a cookie soaks up milk. I like that illustration. Uh, And, of course, what did it make you think of? Oreo. Yeah. Oreo. Verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell Asleep. I want you to remember that one word there, all. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. After much information has been shared about the bridesmaids, we receive the first details about the bridegroom here. And so we ask that question, who is? Who is the bridegroom? The identity of the bridegroom is unmistakable. 
Everything points to Jesus. The context of the parable is undeniably specific. The bridegroom is clearly Jesus. We're also caught by the matter of the delay that is described. It seizes our attention because, well, we can't help reading ourselves into this story. What did it say? The bridegroom was a long time in coming. We're waiting for the bridegroom, aren't we? Aren't we? We're waiting for Jesus to return. So we're in this. We're in this story. You and I, we're among the ten virgins. All the virgins would have been ready for the groom had he arrived when they expected. But you see, grooms delay their coming enough that they should have anticipated it. So it was very common in that era for grooms to delay their coming. This provides clear warning that Jesus' promised second coming might be delayed, right? Yes. Perhaps for Jesus' first disciples who expected the kingdom to appear immediately, and surely for those who were disappointed at Jesus' non-return at the temple's demise in A.D. 70. While the coming may be delayed, it is inevitable. It is inevitable. Jesus promises that he will return with power and great glory. And this is... uh, my own version of John 14, 1 through 3, which I think is the King James. You know, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming again. He promised it. Do we doubt it? Do we live believing it? We should. While the coming may be delayed, it is inevitable. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. The wise, the prepared, were not superhuman, you know, or superheroes. The human body is designed by the Creator to sleep when it gets tired. Remember, it is this same bridegroom who gave humanity the Sabbath to rest on. And I praise God for that. I need the rest every week. I don't know how people make it not having a day of rest. I just don't. I just don't see how they can make it. The text is transparent here. They slept, not because they'd given up the faith or, or they had grown cold in their faith. 
the sleep the virgins slept, all ten of them, was the best of normal human life. They aren't condemned for sleeping in the middle of the night. When else are virtuous, virtuous people meant to sleep? Sleeping at midnight is not a sin. At midnight, the cry rang out, verse 6, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So most of us are secretly wondering, what event starts at midnight? But thanks to modern technology, some sports fans will watch sporting events that start at midnight. Only because it's happening all the way around on the other side of the world. And so for us to watch it and for them to do it at the right time, and if it be live, then we will have to probably watch it at midnight. Events finish around midnight. There are events that do. Weddings and wedding parties often finish around midnight. Some of us stay up to midnight to welcome in the new year. That's tonight. Are you going to stay up till midnight to welcome in the new year? Wait, let me, let me finish. But sensible people go to bed soon after midnight. Now, really true sensible people are going to go to bed before midnight. Has anyone ever attended a wedding that started at midnight? I know you won't raise your hand because I doubt that very much. Well, so what about would you attend a church board meeting at midnight? I don't think I'd get my board members there. I really don't. No, I don't think that would happen. You know, other faiths may conduct their midnight services, but not Adventists. We're believers in health reform. So, no, you know, I think this church actually has had a prayer vigil on uh, New Year's Eve before and stayed up all night. So, the term translated midnight is actually less precise than the original Greek. It's more like in the middle of the night or well into the night. But anyway, at whatever hour, whatever hour, at a moment's notice, all the virgins are called to action. Even if it's the middle of the night, they may have been drowsy earlier, but they're not now. They're awake now. The bridegroom has come. But as has been noted, the passage of time seems to play no essential role in the story. You see, the die has long been cast by the failure of the foolish maidens to bring their oil, to bring extra oil. Like me, you may think of the great ocean liner, the Titanic, which sank in a great tragedy a little more than a century ago, and most of the construction materials were the highest quality except for the rivets, You see, the builders could access only inferior quality rivets 
And the rivets which held everything together didn't hold everything together. In that sense, it wasn't a matter of whether the Titanic would sink, but when. So, same thing with the five foolish. Now comes the decisive moment of the story. The cry comes. Well, for Adventists, the, this phrase is filled with deep and powerful imagery, right? The concept of the midnight cry. Why? Because it's been so central to our history as a remnant that those expecting Jesus' return in 1844 even named a journal after it called the Midnight Cry. Verses 7 and 8, Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. A few years ago, a pastor went to Slovenia speaking at some important meetings, and he was feeling the effects of jet lag after his arrival, and he had worked hard during the day, and it was stressful standing up in front of the people and speaking. And so in the process of going to bed, he knew that he was going to sleep soundly. And just before he got into bed, he had this strange prompting or voice, you know, in his mind that said, recharge your mobile phone. So he looked at his phone and he saw that it was half charged and he thought, that will do, I'll recharge it tomorrow night. He got into bed and slept soundly and the next morning... After speaking for several hours in meetings, his phone rang with the sudden and total unexpected news that his father, thousands of miles away in Australia, had died. He quickly discovered how quickly a half-charged battery empties and expires just when he wanted to be able to talk, to be comforted and offer comfort. He had no power. Emergency travel plans needed to be made, and there wasn't even a spark in his phone. We should listen to those small voices. Let's shine a little more light on the key people in the parable. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. So the five that we've called foolish all knew the bridegroom. You know, they didn't simply know about him. They knew him. They were waiting for him. Supportive. And further, they associated with those that we call wise. They weren't argumentative or destructive. They didn't carry fire extinguishers or water or sand buckets. It wasn't their intention to be hindrances or obstructive. In fact, They had all the right paraphernalia. They had lamps, but they were missing the vital ingredient, oil, the Holy Spirit. In a more familiar analogy, they had a car, but no gas. 
or electric car, electricity, or charge. They had no charge. And you know, they only had one job. One job, which was but a momentary role in the whole scheme, like a percussion instrument in a whole orchestra, a triangle or a drum that has to be hit only once, but at the right moment. So the player must coordinate both elements, both drum and drumstick. But now we have the drumstick, but no drum. Everyone's waiting for one decisive beat, and the other orchestral players are waiting for it also. And also the conductor is expecting it. And even the audience is looking forward to it. And there is silence. There's silence. But we all know the dismay of dashed expectations. When things don't turn out as they should, we cringe at the unworthy explanations offered by those who fail to meet what is reasonably expected of them. You too know the line attempted by too many unready students. (laughs) The dog ate my homework. I've heard of all kinds of excuses, but that one there, that's a good one. The dog ate my homework. (laughs) As one author emphasizes, he says, it's not just a lack of planning, you know. It's a piece of pure thoughtlessness. To borrow the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 56.10, it says, They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. Well-known Adventist evangelist Mark Finley writes about this moment. He says, Living on the knife edge of eternity, on the verge of the kingdom of God, the entire church is pictured as spiritually drowsy and asleep. The foolish virgins trusted in their past experience as if they had all that was needed for their spiritual lives. The height of Christian folly is neglecting personal soul culture and believing everything is all right. The foolish virgins neglected to nourish their souls. And Mrs. White wrote, The class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They have a regard for the truth. They have advocated the truth. They're attracted to those who believe the truth, but they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's working. They have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus. They are in the right place at the right time. They're connected. They have all the right paraphernalia. But they're missing something. I don't want any of us to be missing something. Verse 9. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. 
You know, it may be a bit jolting to think that they won't share their oil. How crude is that? They don't seem to even check to see if they, if they even have any er- surplus. Why? Because they know how much oil they have. Even without looking, they know. Most of us know how much fuel we have in our cars. We know how much our mortgage says, or bank accounts are doing. But do I? Do we know our spiritual oil gauge? As well as we know the level of our car's fuel. A certain man was leading a Bible study with a a group of youth, teenagers. And he was eager to hear their perspective on this parable. So they read the parable together and discussed it together. And then he asked them about the wise not sharing their oil. And the response of one 15-year-old was emphatic. He said, Why should the wise jeopardize their entry when the foolish had every opportunity to have plenty of oil? Why should they risk heaven for them? Interesting thought. It's a good point. You know, the stakes, the stakes are too high, too high. More specifically, the lamps or torches the virgins used made it practically impossible to really to share the oil. Sharing, it's, it's like trying to share air in a tire with a car, you know, in another tire. Or it's like trying to share your pen with somebody during an examination. It's impossible. One writer makes this helpful observation. The thoughtful do not scold the thoughtless or judge them. They don't take the time to do this. Nothing is going to distract the wise from their single purpose. Flaming torches to meet the bridegroom. Verse 10, but while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. So in the middle of the night, the foolish are out trying to buy oil. Now, I don't know how it was back then, But I know how it is today. In the middle of the night, it's kind of hard to find stores open, you know. But we can imagine them going from all sorts of places. And the context of the parable makes it hard to imagine a shop open and selling oil at that hour. Perhaps they resorted to even calling for favors from friends And feverishly visiting acquaintances, trying to borrow, perhaps even begging, begging 
and that's just when the bridegroom arrives. In comparison to the extraordinarily long delay, the banquet starts with remarkable, accurate timing. Not only does the banquet start, but more important, the door was shut. The door was shut. So what does that remind you of? One chapter earlier, Jesus had referenced another story that involved a shut door, that of Noah in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. This is dramatically and unmistakably important. This is dramatically and unmistakably important. Verse 11, later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. We aren't told, you know, whether the foolish had been successful in their attempts to buy oil because, you know, it really doesn't matter anymore, does it? The lights have already gone out. It doesn't matter. The fanfare's over. It's all have taken place already. They could have arrived with a camel load of oil, but it wasn't important now. It was too late. The whole purpose of the torches had passed. The grand triumphal arrival was over. As sporting coaches sometimes say, you can go back to a place, but you can't go back to a time. Verse 12, but he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Now, you say to yourself, um, in verse 11, the foolish ask, probably beg for the door to be open, but it isn't open for them. The bridegroom doesn't even come out to speak with these others. Apparently, he's speaking through the door to them. One author reminds us that one of the chief qualifications for the role of bridesmaid was that they are unmarried friends or relatives of the bride or groom. Now, wait a minute. He just said, he just said, I don't know you. The comparatively trivial lapse of a failure to be provided with oil has come to symbolize an ultimately false relationship they are not really part of Jesus' true family. And the bridegroom says, I don't even know you. I don't know you. This is the moment of our greatest discomfort, but the one in which we should be listening most carefully. Some spiritual decisions can only be described as stupid. That's a strong word, really. The decision to be a Christian, but not too much, which is close to the heart of this parable's meaning, will be described as a stupid decision. To claim that you know him and yet not really do. Verse 13, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Thus we come to the actual 
take-home point of Jesus' parable. In other words, keep your faith, protect, preserve, and nourish your faith. Be keeping watch, we hope. When we hope, we live in joyous anticipation. This overwhelms any embarrassment that we may feel if we are seen by doubters to be watching, watching. When we watch, we long for Jesus to return. When we watch, we pray to and through Jesus. We meditate upon Jesus. We are immersed in him. When we watch, we seek our Bibles and crave to hear the words of Jesus. When we watch, Jesus is a natural, integral part of our lives, accompanying us, tending us, guiding us, guarding us through every intersection of our lives, every curve. When we watch our views, values, and vision more approximate has beautiful views, values, and vision when we watch. And so I close with the very words of Jesus. In verse 13, Therefore keep watch, because you do not, you do not know the day or the hour when our Lord cometh. For you, it could be tomorrow, or for me, it could even be today. We don't know. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We've got to always be ready. And as we're facing a new year, I want for each one of us here today, as we realize the importance how important it was. Because what did Jesus say? I don't even know you. Why? Only because they didn't have what they needed. They didn't really have the Holy Spirit in their lives. They weren't really following his teachings. They weren't really studying his word. They weren't really praying. They weren't really wanting to know him as they need to know him. And I speak to myself every day. I need to study more. I need to pray more. I need to seek more. We can't pray too much. We can't pray too much. We can't study our Bibles too much. We've got to let the things of this world go. We've got to let the things of this world go. Turn off the TV set. Study his word. Take it in. Devour it. Why did he say, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Because he wants us to take it in. I don't know about you. But I do love Jesus. How, how are we going to show that? If you love Jesus, how are you going to show that to others? 
that's what I want for each and every one of you here today is that 2023 will be the year that you will set aside the things of this world. Yes, we have to live in the world. Yes, we have to have cars and how the, all of those things. I understand that. But we can still take time for Jesus, can we not? How much time are we taking for him? I need to take way more time, I know, than I have in the past. And I want to reconsecrate my life to him. To let him know how much I truly and really do love him for the sacrifice that he made for me. I don't want him to come and say, I don't know you. Those words are probably the worst words we could ever hear from the lips of Jesus, our Savior and our King. I never knew you. Don't just come to church on Sabbath, but all throughout the week, think on these things. As it says there in Galatians 6, 8, I'm sorry, I'm just pouring my heart out to you because I love every one of you sitting in these pews today. And Jesus loves you even more because our love is nothing in comparison with his. It says in John, 1 John 4, 8 and 16, God is love. God is love. That's what I share with the inmates. God is love. Therefore, he's always going to be the same. And then in Malachi 3, verse 6, it says, I change not. God is always the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. No matter what you do or what you've done, he's always going to love you, and you can't make him love you any more or any less than what you do. But please, please, turn your heart and your lives over to him. Let him be your focus, not as a second thought, not as, oh, well, you know, I've got to take time to do this. I've got to pray. I need to. No. Desire it. Ask him to put that desire within your heart and to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that that oil, you'll have that extra oil that you need, that extra oil that you need, and that the door will be open to you and you can go in. That's my prayer for you today. And I would like for every one of us here to reconsecrate our lives to him today. As we look at a new year coming, I would like for all of you to stand with me as we rededicate our lives to our Lord and Savior today as we begin a new year, 2023. Loving Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to know you, to serve you, to do your will. But many times we get so caught up because, you know, there's that adversary at work and he's not going to let up. He never sleeps. He never rests. Him and his evil angels, they're constantly working. But Lord, we know that the power that is within us is greater than the power that is in the world. 
and that we can overcome. We can overcome. And that's what I want for each of us, that in this new year, coming 2023, that we can gain that power, that we can keep that power, that the Holy Spirit will come and dwell within each one of us, that we as a church will be unified and become in the body of Christ one, wanting nothing more than for you to come and take us home. We look forward to that day, Lord, with anticipation and with our lamps full and with our jars full of oil so that we won't be left out. And we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor because you're worthy of it in Jesus' precious, precious name. Amen and amen.